Hi, thank you for joining me for another episode of Blossoming You. I hope by now you have subscribed and liked my podcast throughout all the platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube channel. If you really enjoy my podcast, it will mean the world to me if you can share this podcast with your friends and family. And also, don't forget to leave the review below. I want to say thank you to our sponsors, Blossom Media Studio, a turnkey podcast recording studio in sunny San Diego. Today, our guest is Jordan Harrison. He's a professional speaker, educational consultant, and international youth development specialist born in Chicago. Most importantly, he's a disruptor to make a difference. He lives a mission-driven life that focuses on radical imagination and eradicating inequality with the constant reminder of our collective humanity. His work has allowed him to speak to 250,000 people on anti-racism. Jordan's work recently earned him a Fulbright Fellowship to Harvard University, where he earned his Master's in Education in 2018. Currently, is a Senior Director of Programs for Reality Changers, Please welcome Jordan. Hi, Jordan. Hello, how are you? Good, good. How are you? Doing well, doing well. I heard so many good things about you, and I'm super excited for us just having this conversation today. Something that I've been wanting to do, but really afraid. I just realized um, that I wasn't educated enough. Just a lot of misunderstanding or the things that has been happening just make me feel like, I'm so confused. <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand that. Jordan and I met through my friend Monica, and she's a very good friend of mine. And with the Black Life Movement starting, I felt like I wanted to be educated, and I just really felt that Jordan would be the right person to speak to. And he had been an advocate for this uh, movement for a long time. This is something that I need it for myself and for a, lot, for a lot of my listeners just to bring some clarity and understanding. And please start by tell us a little bit more about your current occupation and passion, if it's the same or they separate it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me, Mimi. I'm really glad and honored to be here. Um, I was born in Chicago, uh, and I think my whole life I came from a very social justice family. Uh, my grandfather was one of the first African-Americans to serve in the Marines. Uh, my father was a pastor who also did a lot of uh, work with gangs in the South Side of Chicago, trying to make the world a better place. And so my current role is I'm the Senior Director of Programs of an organization called Reality Changers. Uh, we work with first-generation low-income students uh, that are going off to college. And so sometimes our families come in on average, families of five are making about $35,000. Um, first in their family, a lot of the families the mother and the father or the parents only have about a middle school uh, education or a high school graduation uh, education. So my passion is figuring out how do we create a more just world? Um, how do we create and address the inequities that we see every single day um, in a way that changes the world so that the generation that comes after us doesn't have to deal with some of the same issues we're dealing with today? And so my work and my passion, luckily, um, are intertwined. Um, every day I want to think about how we can make the world a better place. And my job is where I get to do it in San Diego uh, for students and families all across San Diego County. Wow, that's so inspiring. From what you said, I just feel like it is, there are a lot of work to be done. <laughs> yeah, 
there is a whole lot of work to be done. Uh, but the joy is there's a lot of good people doing the work um, and it's important for it to continue and for uh, difference and change to truly to come. I just feel like I have to ask this as a friend that I just met. I just really want to know how did the re recent death of the people from our from the black community like Breonna Taylor, George Floyd and some of the other many names, um, how does that affect you personally and your family? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting uh, for me personally. I actually haven't even watched the George Floyd um, killing mm. um, yet, personally, because I don't have, I didn't have energy to see another black person uh, killed from police brutality. And I think how it's personally affected me is, you know, the sad part is when I saw the names and when I see the names that we have today, the sad part is my initial reaction is, oh no, not another one, like not again. Mm. It's, it's a feeling of frustration that's fueled by exhaustion. Um, I think in my entire life, like the past five years, we think about it from Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, um, all these folks that have been killed by the police. Um, it's almost so normal that hashtags come up every single year. And these are hashtags of people that are, that are living, um, mm -hmm. that were alive. Um, some are young folks, some are older folks. Breonna Taylor who was just sleeping and police came in and, and, and killed her and then arrested her, her, her husband um, her man, her boyfriend, whoever the relationship was, as because he was shooting back, trying to protect himself. And so for me, um, it was a feeling of exhaustion. It was a feeling of, oh no, not again. Um, sometimes it's a feeling of fear of, mm. but it, it's, so, it's so inundated in it. You know, for the black community, uh, there's research that suggests that black folks often carry PTSD that's similar to people who go to war. Now, I'm not saying that it's the exact same type of thing, but there's actually research that suggests because of the lived experience of a Black person in America, um, there's a form of PTSD of just fear of trying to live your life doing anything, you know, whether it's running, whether it's playing with a toy gun, whether it's sleeping, there's so many things that, taking that you can't do. And then so from the family side, it's even more exhausting mm -hmm. because, you know, my mom, I remember my mom being concerned when I drove out, she was like, I just want you to come back alive. Like that's one of the craziest things that black families have to think about. Every time you send your son, your daughter, your child out of the house, you are almost praying that nothing can happen. They don't fit the description of a criminal that someone thinks. Uh, someone doesn't think that they're stealing something because it is a legitimately a blessing every time a black person can come home because too many times we haven't. That's um, so heavy and thank you for being transparent and sharing with me because one thing that I learned for myself from this journey is that intentionally st stepping into someone's shoes from their community help you mm -hmm. to grow not only empathy but also grow the compassion. That's something that I was a little bit struggling with. I am fully Vietnamese. I grew up in Russia and my background it's a little different and views are a little different. We have experienced some ways of racism back in Russia by because we were Asian and I've heard people got beaten up in alleys just because they were Asian, but it yeah. never really was my immediate family, but that you never really try to really fully understand it. And when all of this went down, I was honestly exhausted myself. I'm like, well, this is happening again. And why is that such a big issue? Because I couldn't understand. 
But then now as me asking actually people about their feelings, not like, oh, what are your views are? It's just a little different. Like, what are you actually going through emotionally right now? It helps me to really step in and understand like, oh, wow, like this is not only about proving that I'm right or the community is right. Actually, the community that it's built on people that have hurt feeling. And that's why we see all the looting, all the rage and anger, because there's so much emotion in them that they cannot just get out. Yeah, and, and, and I think a few things to that. Um, I think, for example, the frustration is when these things come up, but also a daily lived experience. Like I think for me, as a black man in America, uh, there's two assumptions that a lot of people, that research suggests a lot of people have for African-Americans. The first is a, what's called an ascription of intelligence. And what that means is oftentimes people assume that black people are less smart, not like can't do as much. In education, you see disparities around black students being kicked out the class more and not being put in like AP classes or gifted and talented education. Uh, the other one um, is they, there is an assumption of criminality. And what that means is more times than not, black people on a daily basis are trying to make ourselves more acceptable, not make ourselves more acceptable, but not seem as threatening. So for mm. example, what that means for me is if I'm running around, I try and take my hood off. If I go to an event and there's a lot of women mm. there, I make sure that I avoid their purses because more times than not, if there's a purse or something missing, that's gonna, someone's gonna look at me first. Um, and so it's my whole life, I can't escape the fact that I'm black. And I love being black. I love that I'm a black man. However, understanding that and operating in America uh, my father always told me, you don't get to do all the same things. You can't play with the toy gun. You can't just walk around. Wow. You need to say, yes, sir, no, ma'am. Look people in the eye. Because there's almost an assumption where if I did something wrong, people are already assuming, hmm, he looks like a criminal. And part of that comes from how we're socialized. Mm. Oftentimes in the media, like you were saying earlier, but in like movies and things like that, Black people fill the roles of what? Thugs, criminals, mm. gang members. And so some of this is subliminal. Because sometimes the only time that people have seen black people, particularly on an international level, are when they're portrayed as like thugs or criminals in movies. And so oftentimes you meet a black person, you're just like, wait, like you, you did something like when I whenever I go to Harvard, people are like, oh, did you go there to play basketball? As though only black people can play sports, right? And I was like, no, I, I got a full ride for education. Um, or did you rap? That, <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. No, but exactly. But that's what's, that's what's held. And then if you think about if you use that, right, and you think about what, what is a rapper, and most people would think about, well, they're probably selling drugs or, or doing crazy things. And what, what image do you think of? More times than I think of a black person, right? And so it's all these assumptions that we hold daily. So I have to hold that people are assuming all these things about me without even knowing me. So mm -hmm. I immediately almost have to like smile or be okay. I don't have to do that. But sometimes that's what you have to do just mm -hmm. to survive so that you can make it to another day. That's like a heavy coat to wear. Like you have to kind of put it on the image just so that you can be treated as human. Right. That's, and, that's, and that's crazy. And I think that's the thing too, like you were saying, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, you know, there's a lot of politics and things that can get tied up into it. But the real core message of it is we just want our humanity to be seen, appreciated, and not be threatened or not feel less than we just want to exist. And I think that's what the outcry is, is we're not even crying right now for revenge, for slavery. We're just saying, let us live a life where we can be at peace. 
where folks don't put bad things on us or over incarcerate us or different things. We just want to live. Mm. And that's, that's what it really comes down to. And good neighborhoods, good schools, good teachers, good jobs. We just want basic human rights. My husband and I just started watching um, When They See Us, the doc mm -hmm. documentary uh, series on Netflix. And we yeah. actually just went through the first episode um, and it was heavy. It was heavy to watch and just thinking like, this is the world that we live in, in the system that like, it almost like it's so hard to get out. I just want to add to that, that I'm all for justice. I'm all for the movement and create the arena for them to speak up and share. But at the same time, help me to understand this because I feel like there's so many things in Thailand that there's certain activists that are using that movement and certain action that they do, I personally cannot agree with. What is your perspective on Black Lives Matter movement and what it has started and what it has become? On a more simpler level, I think um, oftentimes we can get distracted about the message with who's the messenger. And I think, especially for Black Lives Matter National Org, there's a lot of national things that are mm -hmm. going from it and just different policies and different things going on. Uh, but I would just encourage folks to figure out what is your local Black Lives Matter chapter doing, Black Lives Matter chapter doing. Our San Diego chapter here is very um, grassroots from the community that's pushing kind of police reform and different accountability measures and things like that. And so I think oftentimes, as with anything, when you get a lot of people at the table, there can be challenging narratives or different things that we disagree with. Um, I just always encourage folks, plug into your local chapter uh, and really figure out what's going on in your local community because when we start thinking about the national chapter and different things going on, there might be some things that folks are like, well, I don't really agree with that, or that person right. did that. And I think it's more so, so important to stay like, what's going on in my community? And more so getting behind the message, Black Lives Matter, and what that actually means. Um, and, and leaving the, okay, yes, that's going on. And be like, okay, we're just, we're here. We're here no. <laughs> just stay focused on the main. Yeah, because um, I, think, I think that's a challenge with Black Lives Matter, right? And any social progress. I think people want it done a certain way. Mm. Um, there's certain things people are like, well, they shouldn't be doing this. They shouldn't be doing this. They shouldn't be doing this. I'm like, you're right. We did have Colin Kaepernick though, who took a respectful knee three or four years ago and people didn't listen. It's been three years plus of Colin Kaepernick peacefully showing what protests could look like. Mm -hmm. And Black Lives Matter came out of that and different things. And so I think the challenge is this is just the pent up aggression. You know, it's like a volcano. We had them in middle school, you put all that stuff together, it's just about to explode. I feel like this has just been the frustration of black folks holding on for, for generations. Um, and this is what it's looking like now. But I, I always encourage folks, don't get so caught up because a lot of folks are like, well, they did this, they did this. I'm like, okay, there can be things that are happening mm -hmm. adjacent to the movement that can be frustrating, at times distracting, and at times make you want to pull away. But I would say really focus on the message and how that message can live within you internally. You don't necessarily have to say I align with Black Lives Matter entirely, mm. but as long as you internalize that message and reorient your life to say, if I really believe that Black Lives Matter, what does that mean for me personally? And how can I impact that in my sphere of influence? I would say a true believer of that, that we have to take a personal accountability for what we do and yeah. stop pointing fingers. And it's kind of what I started with by, I was like, okay, well, I will support like Black Lives Matter. I'll put the black square on. And then there were more things coming out of it. And it was kind of more of peer pressure of, well, now you have to support Black Lives business. Now you have to do this and do this. And I'm like, 
wait a minute. I didn't yeah. know that I signed up for so much more, which I don't have a problem with. People like to put you in the box and say, well, now if you're supporting this, then you have to do certain way. People get distracted with the movement and they forget that it really comes down to your personal responsibility of holding yourself accountable. Like if you believe it's matter, then support what you believe it matter and educate yourself. Don't just blindly go and protest just because it's a protest. Like really educate yourself before and stand for what you believe. Don't just do it because the crowd do it. See, I have a really big problem with that when the crowd mentality and people just follow each other just for sake of following and they don't know what they're doing. It's interesting too, especially on that topic of looting, because especially one of the things that we see is sometimes that's not even the black people in the movement that are doing it. It's other people. And in some videos, it shows like it's a lot of white people that come into the movement and start yeah. looting things. Yeah. And it's like, yo, the people that are really about justice and especially are trying to take care of their community, they don't want looting. Right. And I think this season was a perfect storm where it was COVID, everyone was pent up and upset. And then there was just like, oh, here's a time where I can go out and get anger out and people are probably frustrated about other things. And I think that's the hardest thing is like, there are a lot of people and programs that wanna hijack a movement, right? Mm. When you get people going out and you have all these things going on, so many people wanna come in with their different agendas and push yeah. different things and start trouble or start breaking down businesses. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, as a person that's like a leader within black lives and different things, I think a lot of folks are not the people that are really protesting are the ones that are saying we are not trying to destroy our community this mm -hmm. is our community mm -hmm. we want to take care of it however we need to bring attention to it but the attention isn't through burning down things right. and so um i think i understand how the frustration can be that real though where some folks can go that far because they're just so frustrated and overwhelmed with it and so for me um kind of going to another thing that you said too though um to actions i think a lot of people think about what can i do what can i do how do i do something right and you were saying that, you know, now you got to do this and do this and do this. And when I'm, when I'm working with people in a lot of workshops that I do, I tell folks, I'm not worried as much about your actions. I want to fix and talk about what is your orientation. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can get the right orientation, we would know what actions we need to take. And I think sometimes we want things so simple that we just want to be like, okay, I like Black Lives Matter. Where's my checklist? How can I know I'm a good yeah. person? How can I know? I'm like, yo, this checklist isn't something that you do on one day. It's a lifestyle and an orientation we hope you would develop and look for, you know, and some of the things are simple. Like, can you go into a room and say, huh, I'm in a boardroom and I'm noticing there's no black people, there's no women, there's no all these things like that type of orientation where you can go to a place and say, this might be hurting someone. And I think we can adjust the system to do better. And that's the type of orientation that we want folks to develop and think about because then the right actions will come out of that. Well, what do you say? I'm like, I'm just like, have to think about it. I'm like, yeah, you're right. But I think that's why I appreciate what you said, though, about you say you and your husband have been watching videos and reading. What's that doing? Helping you widen out your your knowledge base and develop an orientation. So now you're saying like, OK, so this is kind of wrong. OK, so what can we do about that? And then you figure out what's in y'all's power. What can you all do that can make a difference once you all have that orientation of like, well, this issue is happening and we can make an impact on it and that's what you do. I, I think it's very worthy movement at itself and that it needs attention right now. And I completely agree with it. But to be honest, I already talked about like in the beginning when it all came down, it was so overwhelming and tiring. And yeah. with the mix of COVID and with the mix of media that trying to push their agenda, um, 
that becomes hard if you can. In shortly, share with me your opinion on the Black Lives Matter movement in regards of political parties. Is that a political movement, or do you think it's something that should be separated? I know it's very complex. Yeah. So, so I actually did a workshop with um, three different universities in the spring on how do we talk about politics. And one of the first things that we had to enter, and these, these conferences had about 200 to 300 students, college students in them. One of the first things that we had to talk about is what is politics? Because I think too often times you can have an oversimplification of what politics is. It's mm -hmm. either Democrats or Republicans. Like that's what politics is. Mm -hmm. And it's so much. Uh, politics is oftentimes personal. It's systems. It's how you get elected. It's all these things. To me, my understanding of politics and how I, how I understand it is politics are often a value system, but even more so, how do we allocate resources based off of what we value? And so if you think about it, like for example, in America, we have a, in my opinion, it's a very flawed two-party system. You only have two options, it's either hot or cold. Yeah. Nothing in between, so it's already like a flawed system. And so to me, Black Lives Matter is, in my opinion, and in my understanding of politics, it is political in a sense of it is asking for, how do we create a world where resources are more equitably distributed or black people, brown people, women, all these things. But at this moment, we're talking about black people. And so for me, it is a political issue because I think as much as we want to do things in our own silos, we also have to develop policies that can change things and develop systems that can change things. Um, and we've seen some of it from some of the Black Lives Matter work that's been going on now. Um, but I think that's one of the biggest things we want, we want to do. We want to change our communities, but we also want to have policies that are not going to be harmful or oppressive to people uh, but to me, I go back to that beginning part where I see politics more so on how do we develop or how do we distribute resources based off of what we value. And mm -hmm. what Black Lives Matter is highlighting is how the current system is built. Black Lives Matter's issues and challenges are not valued at a real way because we still have a lot of systemic in inequities across so many things. So, for example, in Boston, the average white family value is about one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. The average black family value is eight dollars um, in California. Uh, black students are 10 times as likely to be suspended and black women are three and seven times as likely to be suspended uh, in prison. African-Americans make up 13 percent of the American population, but represent over 40 percent of the prison population. And these are just a few numbers that highlight what Black Lives Matter is trying to say is that there is a value that's lacking of black lives, black issues, and black worth that's showing up in so many ways that we need some things to change in our policies to make true progress happen. I also agree on what you said, that it cannot be that extreme. And I think that's where the flaw of the system is. is you have to be the extreme right or extreme left. You have to be either only Democrat and do everything Democratic or everything that has to be Republican, then you support all. And right. As a Christian, I believe that that's where God has to be our guide. I don't think that in the Bible it says that Jesus is a Republican or Democrat. Right. It's right. just more of using the judgment to choose the right direction that God would want us to be on and what are the people that we are pointed towards it to do. Yeah. It, it's sad that sometimes even that idea get exploited and used in the politics as well. It's like, okay, well, if you believe in God and... I believe that I'm appointed by God to do certain things. It doesn't help people to think for themselves and really go to their like prayer room and think about things. And I feel like it's just like so 
conflict. Thank you for sharing that. Um, it's in a way an educational session for me because I'm not a U.S. citizen uh, yet, but I am on the path of getting one. So <laughs> I do want to educate myself to be in a country where my vote is matter and when I get that chance, I do it with the diligence that I'm not going to take on the part of, oh, well, all my friends are Democrats, I'm going to be Democrat, or all my friends are Republican, and I am. It's just really understanding your values and seeing what country needs in the moment of now. For your next, your next question, I think to that, um, I, I think because I, I am critical of both, both parties, I think both have things that they need to improve and things that we could work on. Uh, but if we take it to the Bible, I think the two things that Jesus really tells us to is first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And second, it's like, love your neighbor, love, mm -hmm. like, love your neighbor. And to me, I think in embodying that, taking politics out of it, if the first thing is to love God, that means I need to make sure this relationship is right, right? I want to make sure me and God are correct. The next part of it is like, how can this relationship be right? Mm -hmm. And I don't know who's next to me, uh, but whoever they are, mm -hmm. to me, love means I will walk alongside of you in pain. I will advocate for you if you feel you don't have a voice. And I will try and make sure that whatever is happening that is making you carry a burden that you might not need to carry, I will try and alleviate that. And so I think that's just my orientation with why I do my work and how it is. It is Christian and Christian informed first. It is this relationship first. Right. And because of this relationship, it gives me a heart for those that I'm walking alongside every day. I think that more than ever, we need love and unity right now. Um, and we just have to pray for our country even more. Now that we're speaking about that, I have a little controversial question, I guess. Okay. What is your relationship with gun policy? With gun policy? That's, a, that's an interesting question. Okay. I just watched a Joe Rogan podcast recently, um, and he spoke to Colleen Noir. He is an attorney and the Second Amendment advocate. So he talks about like pro, he's pro-gun, he's for you know, he's from Texas and, and he's a, I mean, he's from black community. He supports black community, but also certain views to the extreme of like very pro-gun. He says that everybody should own the gun and they should um, make it easier for people to carry firearms and things like that. It's interesting. And I think maybe to answer this, I have to take you on a little journey with me on this one. I think uh, part of this goes back to how America was founded, right? America was found, not founded, it was taken over, uh, colonized by folks who took land from Native Americans in the name of Jesus mm -hmm. and used the Bible as a way of, of doing it, stole labor and property from Africa um, and did it all to make money and to kind of run America. Um, the reason I say that is because it's interesting that when the founders who a majority owned slaves or owned folks who were enslaved, um, they felt two things were the most important. First was the right to say whatever you wanted to. And second is the right to bear arms. Now, maybe back then, if people were hunting or trying to like do their own thing, maybe that makes sense. The hard part is there are so many people that are advocating for their guns right now. For me personally, I am not a major fan of guns. I, I, don't, I don't think many people need guns. The hard part is because America was built on this value mm. and so many people hold it it's almost like you need to protect yourself because or you need to have like it's, it's a challenge of like how do you operate in a world where some person can have a gun and you can't now i don't have one at the moment um but it, it just for me personally i'm not a major fan of the second amendment i really wish we could live in a world i guess here's a real the real truth is i really wish we could live in a world and in america 
where people didn't feel like they needed to have one mm-hmm. or why people have one. And, and the thing is like some people just like, I love my guns. I just love shooting. I love doing all these things. I'm like, that's cool. You, that's That makes sense. But for people to be carrying like army rifles and assault guns and different things, like I'm like, really? These are like people need assault rifles in their home as a citizen in America. It just seems very excessive to me. Um, but this is America having to reckon with what America was built on. Mm. Um, and America was built on the value that guns are important. And so it's interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting because I'm speaking from the perspective as an immigrant. Actually came here and start learning all of these things and like how people about for guns, pro guns and against guns. And honestly, with the COVID that went down and all the things that has been happening, it almost puts you in the position where you feel pressure that you should have a gun at home because you because other people have it. You know, like if nobody would have it, there would be a different conversation. Like when I don't know when we I lived in we live in Vietnam, right? We we don't really think about those things. I mean, obviously, the economic situation and pol- political situation are a little different over there, but even it's not a thought in your head that you should have it. And we have friends who sell guns, yeah. and their sales like, went up like crazy, and we're yeah. like, should then mean more people buying guns, so are we should be buying guns? Because then now we are in minority of not having guns. Yeah. So it, it, it's kind of like a weird position. Like, I don't like guns itself, but now it feels like almost like I have to have it. Yeah. And, it, and it's a frustrating position to be in because um, I think I, I feel the exact same way. And I think particularly as a black man during this time where there feels to be a really strong contention between white people and black people at this moment in time where it's like people are liable to do anything right now. And, and I think... Like, I'm just going back to what I said. It's so interesting. Like, think about the America that we were built on, that they thought the second most important thing to have was to have your guns. Like, right after you can say whatever you want, you should have a gun to be able to protect yourself to do it. Like, that's so interesting. It just shows you, going back to the idea of values, like our forefathers, or the, not mine, the, the forefathers of America, they felt that a gun was the second most important thing to have mm-hmm. at the foundation of this country. For me, that I'm like learning every day more and more. It's like I would say I treasure America and just the fact that I can live here, that it is the country that parts of it is still believe in God and the Constitution is relying on, you know, a lot of principles from the Bible. But at the same time, there are certain things that I just like, I can't wrap my head around it. It's such an interesting time, particularly in the relationship between politics and religion and particularly Christianity. Um, and what I mean by that is, I think you mentioned it earlier, people can manipulate the Bible to say whatever you want it to say. Yeah. And I think it's very important to be able to be informed so you can be very critical and careful about who you allow to feed you spiritually. Um, I know a lot of churches that uh, push very strong political agendas. And I think sometimes yeah. it can be very dangerous if it's put through a lens um, that sometimes is pushing an agenda more than it's pushing God. And I think some folks, and I think pastors have a lot of power in that people see them as spiritual leaders. Um, and sometimes it takes away people's critical thinking skills because they're like, well, if you're a pastor, you're closer to God. And that means you understand stuff. I have to tell people, you have to remember, it was Christians who started slavery in America. And they said that it was God's right to put them in America to take out indigenous folks 
and to own the land. And I think in many ways, there are some pastors across America that still carry the same sentiment mm -hmm. that say that this is a conqueror type of religion where it's not really community and in love, but it's more so like take greed and wealth. And there's not anything wrong with having wealth and there's not wrong with you kind of owning and growing in life. But we also have to be very careful and critical about how are our leaders interpreting the Bible and pushing things onto us that some might be misinterpretations or bastardizing of the Bible itself. I absolutely agree. And the thing that I learned throughout all of this couple months is that I just, I love going to church, but I cannot stand the church that is having political agenda. And I think it's a challenge for me that I'm praying to God every day. How can I help the community and the people that are believing in God to wake up and to actually take the, their ability to think back and not follow blindly the leaders of the church that for some reason just have the different agenda rather than God? Yeah, like, how yeah. do you wake them up? Because it's... It's incredibly hard. Um, I think particularly, like I was saying, pastors wield a lot of power over people, um, particularly because Christianity and most religions are built on faith. And so the premise when people enter a church is everything doesn't have to make sense. I mm -hmm. can just trust God. And so if a pastor can speak from that space, everything they say doesn't necessarily have to make sense because the whole religion of Christianity is based on faith. And so it's very challenging to have these honest conversations with people. I think it can be gradual, um, particularly, and I think particularly in this setting, it's challenging to have it with white people. In America, where we want to talk about like white privilege and what that means in different things, um, a lot of people talk about evangelical Christians and how that, um, that can be a very challenging group to work with um, because of interpretations of the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, it, and it's hard. I mean, I don't know, God willing, if I can do something about it and make something out of this challenge, but even help the people that are surrounding me now to yeah. wake up and have their own critical thinking. And I have to actually go through it myself as well. One of the questions that I want to know from you, what can I do as an individual and what is community needing right now? So you kind of said it, like having that sphere of influence where you have that relationship with folks who I might not have relationships with, who I might not hear, who might say things that can be racist or problematic and just calling them in in love and educating them. Um, one of the things that we talk about in the work in social justice is there's this word ally, and it means it's a person who's an ally to the community. Another word that a researcher has, has kind of offered up, and some people don't like this word, I kind of like it, is this idea of being a co-conspirator. And all that means is you're walking alongside with the community and saying like, how can I really serve best in the community? And I think Every individual person's um, work in social justice is really on them once they get that orientation. So whether it's donating, whether it's supporting, I think one of the most powerful things that people can do is within their own sphere of influence. So who are the people you're talking to? Who are the people that you're in relationship with? And how can you um, broaden their understanding, uh, enlarge their empathy circle? Um, how can we do our own bias checks? Because I think one thing is a lot of white people in this season can feel like they're being attacked um, mm -hmm. or having to come or having to come for the first time with very hard truths. And that's real. And so I think one of the, the things I always encourage folks to do is be comfortable with the uncomfortable. Um, unfortunately, people are realizing our American education system does not teach a lot about some of the real harsh realities of American histories and some of the systems and some of these things. And so I think um, being, being able to uh, 
just do that work, do the hard work of changing your orientation. Now close, and I'll close that, that, that question with these three things. I think there was three I said on a podcast on Monday that I love. Um, and the first one was being vocal. Mm-hmm. And so that's just being able to tell people, let them know about things. If you can't donate using your social media or using whatever platforms you have to share with things, uh, being visible. I think this is a time when one, like you said, I think it's important for you to be informed and know what you're saying and then being visible and letting people know, hey, here are things you can do. And then the last one is being vigilant, which is just understanding that this is not a sprint, it's a marathon. Mm-hmm. And so always just being looking out, uh, looking out for people, particularly people of color, women, uh, folks of different backgrounds and saying like, is everyone okay? And really making sure that we can fight and co-labor with people to make a difference in the world that we're living in. For me, the way I see it, it's more that we're standing up for love and unity. Also, people say, well, all life matter. Well, all life matter until black life matter. And now that's where community needs the most. So let's focus on that. It's like a big issue too. It's like, well, what about Mexican life? What about Asian life? But you are not on fire right now. Yeah, and exactly. you are, you matter too. <laughs> Exactly. Like, I think one of the greatest ones I've heard, because I've heard so many about this, I think one of the greatest ones I heard is, can you imagine if you came home to your husband, right? And you said, um, husband, I love you. And he said, I love everybody. You would be really upset. You'd be like, what? what that's not, I, don't, I know you love everybody, but what about me right now? And I think that's all Black Lives Matter is saying. It's what we understand the foundational belief is all lives matter. Yes, that is a fact. The truth that we need to talk about is Black Lives Matter. And I think one of the things that people, there's a quote that I loved in grad school that my friend told me, or my professor told me, she said, people don't fear change, they fear loss. Mm. And I think during this season, when we say Black Lives Matter, I think other people feel like they're losing their visibility. They're losing their sense of importance. They're losing their sense of being like, well, what about me? And I think part of that change is understanding sometimes we need to center other people's issues so that we can really do something about it. Because when we talk about everything, nothing really gets done. But then I also have to, I take responsibility too, when I do post something or say something, I give more details and nuance to it. And I think that's what is nowadays generation is missing. They will post the picture real quick, put, put the hashtag real quick on Instagram or on Facebook or repost something. Don't really doing research in the back. Miss all the nuance. It actually caused more fights and arguments. Like, oh, why did you do this? Well, I don't really know. Well, why are you doing this? As a you know, millennial, I'm trying to really be more cautious about of what I'm posting and helping the new generation that is coming next to really look into nuances. Like, it, it's not black and white. It's more complex than it is. It's not only you post Black Lives Matter and it's all. Like, there's more things into it and you should actually take responsibility and look into it if you really want to be a part of solution. So that's what I see as a challenge for myself. Exactly. I think we don't need many more. I mean, it's important. Everyone says social media is like real estate. So plus there, what's important. Uh, But I think, like you said, there's, I I live for the nuances because I think like you were saying, very few things are yes or no. Yeah. Uh, Very few things are just, it's all this. Like I I don't like absolutism besides God is good and all the time. But besides that, like very few things are, this is always true or this is not always true. And it's really understanding our, our lives are complex. Mm-hmm. People are complex. Our systems are complex. Uh, and one of the hardest things that we have to do is to think about them. It is a privilege to not really dig deep 
and figure out like what is this actually saying it's hard work and i think sometimes folks just want to say i just want to i just want to reshare this i don't want to actually do this like before you reshare it do the work understand what it's saying and be ready to engage and educate people and also be able to say i haven't done enough but this is kind of what i'm feeling about this and be willing to be told if you're wrong or if you're right or if you're on the right track yeah i think you have to understand accountability is a part of love And I think generation that is coming up, like after millennial, that's what they're missing a lot. They are such a microwave generation that they just want things now and be done with. Like, can I just post a, something and get million likes just because it's cool? Yeah. I think simultaneously, last thing, uh, our generation is also big on cancel culture, where one person posts one thing bad and the whole world will come and attack them. And my orientation is I think accountability is good, but all of us are flawed. All of us have fallen short. Um, and I think it's important that folks we need to be held accountable, but we also need to lend grace where necessary so we can really repair people or have people understand and grow from it, not become angry and bitter at it. I've mm-hmm. seen people make small mistakes that definitely were bad or harmful, but then they get berated by everyone. I'm like, that's not the best way that mm-hmm. we're really going to heal. And like you said, when it comes to love and unity, we have to invent the world that we want to exist in. And that means we have to work through some of these growing pains that we're going through right now and changing things for the better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's move on to my favorite thing and everybody's favorite thing is last five, just short answers. So my podcast is about personal growth and personal development. For someone to start this journey, where would you recommend them to start? Good question. Um, I think one of the first things is I would recommend the book White Fragility uh, to read that book. And just to begin questioning like some of the truths that you hold, um, I would question people to have, have questions, really reflect like, when I say the word black, what do you think? When I say the word white, what do you think? And then most importantly, when you get that answer, don't just accept that answer, say, why do I think this? Was it because I was educated some way? Was it because I saw movies in this some way? And then begin that deconstruction mm-hmm. process. One of the hardest things, but the most beautiful things we can do is rebuild ourselves in ways that are gonna be so much more productive. So I think reflecting, deconstructing, and rebuilding ourselves to a better space. Well, next question, what is the best tip or advice you can give for someone to grow themselves? Trust God and we live by faith. Yeah, I would just say trust trust God. And my dad always said this, he had this on the, he had this on the refrigerator. He would say, your condition is not your conclusion. Mm. Um, and so I would remind people that as you're growing and as you're going through things, the condition you are in right now is not the conclusion for who you are, period. And so remember that the moments that you're in right now, although hard, although challenging, although confusing, although all these things, it is not your conclusion. So carry on, hold up the fight, uh, continue on, and know that your conclusion can definitely be rewritten by God and the work that you're doing. Oh, amen. I love it. What is this new skill that you are learning right now or practicing? Ooh, you know, I'm practicing journaling more. I oh. love self-care and trying to understand myself more. So I've been journaling a little bit more, understanding what type of journal prompts that I like, and just really being able to put things down on paper. And so that's been a new skill I've been working on, just how I can really uh, write better, but also just process emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, my master's program was a lot in uh, counseling. And so I always just like trying to make sense of things like emotions, giving mm-hmm. voice to them and honoring that. So that's been a, a fun process to go through and grow. Yeah, that's a lot of work. It, I yes, can't ma'am. even sit still <laughs> to do that. <laughs> Where do you go to look for inspiration? Ooh. Oh, my students, my students. I work with over 500 students across San Diego County and uh, I just listen to them. They are brilliant sources of joy. 
they are fighting things that are trying to tell them to quit every single day. Mm. And I'll just say, I'll just look at them and I'll be, I'll be reminded that I can't quit. Them and my grandfather always are the folks that I always kind of go to for inspiration. Last question, number five. If in 150 years, science fails to save us and all that is left is book about your life, what would the title be and what would the blurb tell us? If it doesn't make sense, you're on the right path. The blurb would say, how trusting God might take you down valleys you've never been to, but will take you to mountains where you can see the world. Oh, beautiful. So can't wait for the book to come out then. <laughs> <laughs> I made that up on the spot. That was a good one. I might need to keep that one. <laughs> Thank you so much again for just uh, being here and for your time and just educating me and just my audience on this matter. I know there's a lot of work for us to be done and just a lot of things to educate ourselves, but I think we're getting closer every day that we intentionally go and seek and ask questions. So thank you so much for doing what you do and for all the kids and your students that you are impacting and San Diego will be a better place from what you do. From both of us, thank you for having me on and thank you for using your platform as a place to talk about these critical and important conversations with your listeners. So thank no, you so much. Absolutely. And then what, if people want to connect with you, where they can find you? Uh, my website's jordanjharrison.com. Uh, my Instagram's jordanjharrison. Either one of those, they can uh, kind of find me. Um, or my email is jordanjharrison at gmail.com. So any of those uh, places can connect. Here to have conversations if people just have really random questions or anything, they can reach out to me and I'm glad to uh, connect them or answer questions myself.